Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Lessons from the world's top professors. Anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. And we're back on the untold history of sports in America. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Last time, we discussed the 1920s, the era that made the first American sports stars who were larger than life, like Babe Ruth and Jack Dempsey. Today, we'll be discussing sports and the American woman, the figureheads who led the way in normalizing female participation in athletic contests, and what society thought about women who chose to play sports around the turn of the century. Believe it or not, it wasn't positive. Here's Matt. The absence of women in most of our discussions about sports so far is... Instructive, I think. It's an indication of the larger attitudes in America about women and sport. For many Americans, and it doesn't really matter when we were talking about, but for many Americans, the notion of women's sport was an oxymoron. You know, throughout American history, many Americans believed that women and competitive athletics were incompatible, antithetical. And so women were not encouraged to play sports. I mean, more than that, they were actively discouraged. So during the 19th century, though there was more and more evidence every day of American boys and men playing sports, you had to look pretty hard to find evidence of girls and women engaged in these same pastimes. The ideas behind this, these assumptions and discouragements, they finally begin to erode in the 1970s. But for most of American history, the female athlete was considered by most Americans to be a suspect character. Let's begin our discussion of early female athletes by examining some of the dominant ideas about women in the 19th century. And specifically, let's ask the question, in the minds of many Americans, what was the ideal woman like? What traits did she possess? 
When attempting to answer this question, I'd like to turn to a novel from the middle of the 19th century. It's a 1852 novel by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's called The Blythedale Romance. In this novel, a man named Miles is trying to choose between two sisters to be his wife. There is the frail and meek Priscilla and the much stronger and robust Zenobia, which is an awesome name. Well, Miles chooses the frail Priscilla, and he makes his decision one day as he's watching her walk across the lawn, and Priscilla falls, and she she sprawls weakly on the grass, and there she stays, exhausted. She has fallen, and she can't get up. And Miles finds this very attractive. For Miles, the weak Priscilla, she's the ideal woman. So in this novel, Hawthorne is describing a mid-19th century American culture that equated frailty with feminine beauty. Physical weakness was considered feminine because weakness was seen as a sign of, of, of moral purity. A weak woman, a a delicate flower of a woman, was seen by many as being ideal. Think of it this way. If American men were supposed to be muscular Christians and, and, and live the strenuous life, then women thought of as being the opposite of men. They were supposed to live their lives as unmuscularly and unstrenuously as possible. Using the words of the day, women were the weaker sex. And for men like Hawthorne, this weakness was something to cherish. Okay, now having set that baseline, despite these widespread views, there were some early voices out there calling for women to be more physically fit, to to exercise their bodies. For example, in 1855, Catherine Beecher, she wrote Letters to the People on Health and Happiness. This was a, an early essay on female physicality. And in this essay, she urged women to spend one or two hours every day in vigorous exercise. Now, I want to be very clear here. This was not a call for women to engage in competitive sports. This was a call for exercise. And for Beecher, the ideal exercise was either calisthenics or, and wait for it, Housework. Housework briskly performed. And her reasons were interesting. The reason women were to become fit was so they might be better child producers. And there was actually a racial dynamic to this. White women needed to be more fit so they could bear a greater number of healthy children in the name of furthering the white race. White women should engage in vigorous housework in the name of strengthening their bodies so they might be better baby producers. So, yes, here we have a call for female physical fitness, but I just want to ask rhetorically, how progressive is this? Well, it's at the end of the 19th century that we begin to see a challenge to many of the dominant ideas out there. This is when more and more American women start to engage in athleticism and they start to play sports. So let's do this. Let, let's slow down and take a tour of turn of the 20th century America. Let's see where in this era one might find sports women. You know, where might we find women playing sports or just being athletic? 
Well, one of the sources for increased physical activity for American women was the bicycle craze of the 1890s. And we talked about the invention of the safety bicycle a few lectures ago. Uh, the, the bicycle had a profound effect on the lives of American women. The bicycle was a source of amusement. It, it was a source of exercise. And even more than that, it was a source of mobility for American women. The wheel, as it was called, it enabled women to literally go places they were not able to go before, away from the home, into town, down a solitary country road. Well, men came up with all sorts of reasons why women shouldn't ride bicycles. There were doctors out there who announced that avid cycling could lead to an affliction in women known as bicycle face, where women developed a protruding jaw, wild staring eyes, a strained expression. Bicycle face, doctors warned, could be permanent. Even more serious, bicycling was perceived as a potential sexual threat. Here's how one critic of women and the wheel put it back in 1895. Cycling might lure young women away from the home and its duties, lead them to remote spots alone with men where they might succumb to seduction, or even stimulate the genitals, resulting in equally unimaginable horrors. Egad, sexual degradation with or without a male partner. I mean, there were clearly anxieties out there over women and the wheel. But again, though I mentioned these fears, I, I think the bigger story here is how the bicycle helped transform the idea of what a woman could do and, and where she could go. You know, a little more specifically, how far from the home she could travel. So liberating was the bicycle that Susan B. Anthony, one of the prominent American suffragists from this era, she called the bicycle, very simply, the freedom machine. Also transforming the female sport landscape at this time was a small but growing number of elite American sportswomen. These were women who played country club sports like golf, uh, tennis, archery, croquet. And there's a logic to this, actually. It was here in the country clubs, these, these, these private gated off spaces, that upper class women were able to experiment with sports because they were they were sheltered. They were sheltered from society's condemnation, you know, sheltered because of their great wealth. The most notable of these upper class athletic women was Eleonora Sears, who I think we need to know because I'm going to describe her as the first great American female athlete. A sportswoman who rose to some degree of prominence at the turn of the 20th century, you know, meaning there were occasional newspaper articles written about this strange woman who played sports. Eleonora Sears came from one of the wealthiest families in Boston, and she first made a name for herself playing tennis and squash, competing against a small pool of other women also doing these things. But she also participated in quote-unquote men's activities. She raced sailboats. She raced automobiles. She flew airplanes. She entered shooting competitions. She played polo. She broke a gender barrier in Boston and played on a men's polo team. You know, Eleonora Sears looked for equality of opportunity in sports. Now, 
This is not sports, but it speaks to her mindset. Eleanor Sears was once arrested for smoking a cigarette in a hotel lobby in Boston. It was illegal for women to smoke cigarettes in public at that time. Sears was not a smoker, but when she heard about the ban that only applied to women, she asked someone for a cigarette and lit up. You know, Eleanor Sears reminds me to an extent of Jack Johnson. She didn't care what others thought about her. She was going to be who she wanted to be. And so Eleanor Sears was at the forefront of the female revolution in sports. But I think we need to place her in the context of a larger movement at this time. This is the rise of what was called the New Woman. The New Woman burst onto the American scene in the 1890s, and she has never left. The late 19th century was a time when women were streaming into education, into the paid workforce. They were getting involved in politics, political reform movements. These were all arenas that before then were entirely male dominated and considered masculine. You know, in politics, these demands for reform paid off for American women in 1920 when the 19th Amendment finally resulted in women being given the constitutional right to vote. And so playing sports was just one manifestation of this new woman. Though, as we're going to see, the opposition to female athleticism is going to be even more stubborn than the opposition to female political participation. It will take at least another half century for society to accept the idea of girls and women playing competitive sports. I'm just one individual with his own humble opinion. But if you ask me, if you want to gauge societal views toward women, look at how society views the female athlete. So it was the action of Sears and other elite women who started to lay the groundwork for the idea of female competitiveness. But also doing this were the actions of the women who played sports in college at this time. It was the young women at Vassar College in New York who led the way. At Vassar, school educators stressed that in order for women to have a healthy mind, they needed also to have healthy bodies. So here's that idea that we've discussed with regard to men being transferred to women. Among the sports the Vassar women played was the national pastime, baseball. Vassar students in the 1870s, they, they formed baseball clubs. They started playing games against each other. They called themselves the Vassar Resolutes. You know, the emphasis on healthy body, healthy mind, it spread to other women's colleges. And by the start of the 20th century, women's college sports, you know, in these elite all-female schools, the, it was on the rise, especially basketball. Basketball seems to have been the sport of choice in the women's colleges, but it was a different brand of basketball than what the men played. And, and I think this next story is especially instructive and important. The center of early women's college basketball was Smith College in Massachusetts, not that far from Springfield, where basketball had been invented. The game there was being promoted by Senda Berenson, a, a female physical educator. James Naismith is the father of basketball, clearly. Well, I think of Senda Berenson as the mother of women's basketball. 
Senda Berenson took the game that Naismith had invented, and she changed the rules. She changed the structure to create a game that she thought was more appropriate for women. You know, as much as Berenson loved basketball, she feared that the game might be a little too strenuous, a little too hyper-competitive for women. And so she amended the game that Naismith had created. And her amendments to women basketball were known as the Smith Rules. Berenson thought there should be less running, less movement in women's basketball. So first, she decided that her students would play six on six, not not five on five as the men played. But more than that, she divided the basketball court into thirds, and she assigned two players from each team to each third of the court, and they had to stay in that designated area. So they were not allowed to run the whole court. And because Berenson liked the antagonistic aspects of the game and thought that women were more emotional than men, was her words, according to the Smith rules, it was illegal to grab the ball out of an opponent's hands. No snatching of the ball. So let's think about what's going on here. Berenson loves basketball. She believes in female athleticism. But in order to fit ideas about women's physical abilities and the so-called female temperament, she has altered the game. These Smith rules will dominate the women's game for decades. The, the three-zone division of the court, that will be part of women's basketball for almost half a century. And in most of the country, when women played basketball, they played six on six all the way until the 1970s. Our cultural assumptions about gender difference are embedded in our sports. Six on six basketball for women or the ladies tees on the golf course or the rules prohibiting contact in women's lacrosse. For much of American history, the assumption has been that if women are going to play sports, these sports need to somehow be less strenuous versions of the sports that men play. After the break, meet the first two female American sports superstars. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 
Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. But let me end with the stories of a couple female athletes whose exploits demonstrated that women could do remarkable things in sports. You know, last time we discussed the rise of the sports heroes from this era. Well, female athletes were unable to attain heroic status among the majority of Americans. But there were a few female athletes who became household names across the United States. And I want to end by focusing on the stories of two female athletes in particular. And I want to highlight these two athletic women because they were two women who fascinated the American public, but they were women who worried the American public as well. The most celebrated American female athlete of the 1920s was Gertrude Ederly. Ederly was a swimmer from New York City, and she grew up swimming in the waters off of Brooklyn, and she became the nation's top female swimmer. She won an Olympic medal in Paris in 1924. But what won her national recognition, and more than that, global fame, was what she did on August 6th, 1926. On that day, Gertrude Ederly, she lathered herself up in grease and jelly to protect her body from the elements. She walked into the ocean off the coast of France, and then she became the first woman to swim across the English Channel, the 21 miles of open water that divides England from mainland Europe. She was in the water for over 14 and a half hours. But she beat the previous record, a record set by a man, by over two hours. So this was an incredible feat. You know, who's the weaker sex now, bub? And Gertrude Ederly returned home an American hero. She received a mammoth ticker tape parade. But it was fleeting. As was often the case with female athletes at this time, a celebration of her accomplishment soon took a backseat to a discussion about her body and her behavior. The press openly discussed, with, with a little bit of horror, I might add, Gertrude Ederly's body. Ederly weighed 145 pounds. She was broad-shouldered. She had muscular thighs. I mean, she swam the English Channel. But there were almost as many articles suggesting that Ederly had transgressed the boundaries of femininity as there were articles reveling in what she had accomplished. The discussion about Gertrude Ederly, it very much reminds me of contemporary discussions of Serena Williams' body. Um, though, of course, with Serena, you have the added factor of race. That said... The anxieties over Gertrude Ederly were nothing compared to the anxieties provoked by another athlete from this era, the female athlete of the early 20th century, Mildred Babe Didrikson. 
So we end today with the other babe in American sport history. You can make the case that Babe Didrikson is the greatest all-around athlete in American history. She could do it all. She was called Babe because of the home runs she hit growing up playing baseball with the boys. So she was nicknamed after Babe Ruth. All her life, people told Babe Didrikson what a lady was supposed to be and do. And for most of her life, Babe Didrikson said, I don't give a shit. And I use that language purposefully because that's how Babe Didrikson talked. And, and that bothered a lot of people. That's unladylike, they said. Mildred Didrikson was born in 1911, and she grew up on a farm in rural Texas. So she grew up in a working class culture that valued female strength. You know, on the Texas family farm, everyone pitched in. So female strength was seen as an asset, not something to be suspicious of. No Priscilla's on the Texas farm, right? Zenobia's only. Babe loved sports. In high school, she played and excelled at every sport available to girls. She played volleyball, tennis, basketball. She swam. She wanted to play football, which caused a lot of laughter in her Texas town. In fact, trying to mock Babe's toughness, one member of her high school football team challenged Babe. He said, hit me on the chin. So she did. She knocked him unconscious. Score one for the Babe. While excelling in sports in high school, Didrikson caught the eye of someone from the Employers Casualty Company. This was a, an insurance company in Dallas. And in 1930, Babe was hired as a secretary, but she did not type letters or open the mail. Her real job was company athlete. She was hired to represent the Employers Casualty Company in sports. All right. Between 1920 and 1960, most of the athletic opportunities available to young women did not come in college. They came playing sports for companies like this. You know, these companies, they recruited players. They put them in flashy satin uniforms decorated with the company name and logo, and then they sent them out to compete. As far as team sports go, this was the absolute pinnacle of women's sports in the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s. There were very few college sports opportunities, and certainly there were no women's professional sports leagues like the, the WNBA or the National Women's Soccer League. I mean, those things were far, far off in the future. These industrial leagues, as they were called, they were the apex and this is where Babe made a name for herself, representing the employer's casualty company and competing in the AAU. Babe was the star of the company's basketball team. She led her team to the AAU National Championship in 1930 and 1931. Babe was the only member of her company's track and field team. In other words, it was a team of one. But no matter, in 1932, at the AAU Women's Track and Field Championship, Babe Didrikson won the team competition all by herself. Babe could do much more than just basketball and track. She was a great bowler. She could punt a football more than 50 yards. In, in short swim distances, she had world-class speed. You know, Babe was once asked, is there anything you don't play? And she said, yeah, 
dolls. That's a good line. Another point for the babe. Babe Didrikson represented the United States at the 1932 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, but she was frustrated to learn that women could only compete in three events. That was the maximum. So, you know, there was no limit for men. Well, at these Olympics, she won gold medals in the javelin and the 80 meter hurdles and a silver medal in the high jump. And then after the Olympics, Babe took up one of the few athletic opportunities available to women in the 1940s and the 1950s, golf, a country club sport. Women's golf was relatively acceptable and popular at this time because it was an upper-class sport. And Babe Didrikson tore through the golf world. Babe Didrikson is arguably the greatest female golfer of all time. In one two-year span, it was 1946 and 1947, Babe Didrikson won 17 consecutive women's golf tournaments. It's incredible. And just to add one more fact of significance, Babe Didrikson was the leading voice in the establishment of a women's professional golf league, the Ladies Professional Golf Association, the LPGA. It was created in 1950. In 1953, Babe Didrikson was diagnosed with cancer. And in America in the 1950s, when people had cancer, they did not say they had cancer. Cancer was not a word that polite people uttered in public. But Babe Didrikson was not polite in that way. She publicly announced that she had the disease and she devoted herself to raising money for research and treatments for all cancer patients. Babe Didrikson died from cancer in 1956. She was 45 years old. You know, it's all amazing stuff, but I want to end by raising this question. What was her larger effect on women's sports? And I, I think this is actually difficult to assess. On the one hand, she won the respect and the admiration of millions of Americans for her amazing athletic feats. So she certainly transformed some of the dominant ideas out there about what women could accomplish in the world of sport. But it was these same successes, along with her colorful language and her, her, her short hair and her, her tanned muscles, These caused a lot of Americans to see Babe Didrikson not as a wondrous athlete, but really as, well, a freak. And I I think that's the word to use. The sports writer Paul Gallico called Babe Didrikson a muscle maul, and he did not mean it as a compliment. Maul is short for molly, which was a term for a prostitute in that era. So when Paul Gallico called Babe Didrikson a muscle maul, He was calling her a deviant, a gender deviant. There's a wonderful biography of Babe Didrikson by Susan Califf. And in it, she says that Babe Didrikson was an American boogie woman. That is, she was a figure used by mothers who wanted to warn their daughters of the fate before them, of of what they would end up like if they played sports. You know, you keep playing baseball and climbing trees and you'll end up just like Babe Didrikson. People will think you're a problem. Susan Califf, she concludes her biography with a very interesting thought. 
She says that Babe Didrikson's accomplishments could have redefined ideas in America about womanhood. People could have said, wow, women are awesome at sports too. But instead, most Americans saw Babe and her muscles and her salty language as evidence that competitive sports and real womanhood were incompatible. They saw what they wanted to see. But Babe reinforced their idea that a true woman, a real woman, should not compete in sports. In other words, as great as she was, Babe Didrikson may have closed doors rather than open doors for other female athletes. That's all for now. Next time on The Untold History of Sports in America, presented by One Day University, save me, Joe Lewis. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.